could forget the theme to Grange Hill, the show you'd rush home from school for just to spend half an hour watching other kids at school. I'm Genevieve, and this week on Celebrity Catch-Up, I'm joined by one of the programme's iconic characters from the 1980s. It's Samo Maguire, played by Lee McDonald. Hello, Lee. How are you? Hi, yeah, not too bad, thank you. So where are we meeting you today via Zoom? I am in the back of my locksmith shop. I hate doing Zoom because it's all close up. I suppose uh, we should start by saying that we have a little bit of history together because you were my hairdresser about 10 years ago and you did my hair once. You were very brave, to be fair. Yeah, that show was amazing. I really enjoyed it. And it was like, it was... It was just, and I really took it as a as a joke, really, which, you know, I don't think that was the idea of it because some of them were really good on it. Well, I'll just explain to people that this was Celebrity Scissor Hands. That was um, a BBC programme where a bunch of celebrities trained to be hairdressers uh, in aid of children in need. They did. And I did, I, I, to be honest, I was probably the worst one on it and I come fourth. <laughs> so I, I think that's... Well, that says a lot about the other ones, but it was uh, it was really good fun and and, and made great friends there as well. It was brilliant. Have you uh, forayed back into hairdressing at all during lockdown? Yes, yes. Um, the the maddest thing is I've got a picture on. It's a picture on Twitter of me cutting my boy's hair with the same box with Zamo <laughs> written on it that was given to me uh, by Lee Stafford. So I've got because uh, what it did, they said you could keep all the um, all the brushes. So I picked up and I've got everything in there, straighteners a lot. So my, my, my partner Jess was in stitches because I come out with this um, like bum bag with all combs, brushes and and, and all I was doing was shaving my son's hair off and I, I had all the stuff. So I really did. And because I did that and I was useless on the show, but I honestly sat there and I, I thought I was like, you know, Lee Stafford all over again. I, I uh, and and his hair looked really good, if I'm honest. They did try and cut mine, the kids, but it it it, it didn't go so well. It'll grow back. It's fine. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so let's head straight into the nostalgia zone. Uh, we've just had the 40th anniversary of when Grange Hill first started, and it was certainly something that. I grew up watching. Did you watch it before you joined the show? Before I was in Grange Hill, I used to run home to watch Tucker. Um, at that time, there was only three channels. There's BBC One, BBC Two and ITV. So there was no Channel 4, no Channel 5. And all the kids would be talking about it. And it's, it's really bizarre because um, you would be at school all day and then you would run home to spend another half hour watching kids again at school. Um, but I think what Grange Hill did is is you could relate to, there was like, there was Tucker, there was a, there was a main character, a, a bullied character, a fat character. And I think everybody from school could relate to somebody. So they would come home and they could identify with a character in, in Grange Hill. And, and I look back at Grange Hill now when Tucker was in it, and I've seen some of them, and they throw, throw a bench into a swimming pool. And the stuff they get up to, which I can understand now when parents used to say, we're not letting our kids watch that. And <laughs> I didn't used to think it was a big issue. But looking back at it now, when I watch it with my kids, I'm like, oh, it was it was really near the mark, wasn't it, for a kids' program? So you joined... Grange Hill in 1982, and I think you were 13 at the time. 
when you joined? I was, yes. What they used to do is try and pick, because uh, obviously the character was 11, but they tried to pick kids who were a little bit older because they could work longer hours. That was the reason. And I looked young. And I suppose that the real appeal for, for me watching the show was seeing kids on telly at school that were that were my age and effectively growing up with them every year. And that's exactly it, because you would get a group of kids that, that you say we was in N1, class N1 at Grange Hill. And so whoever was in their secondary school at the first year of that school would grow up because we was in it, for, you know, from year one to I was in the sixth form. So every Tuesday and Thursday, the kids would come home and would be part of their friends. They would just, you know, Hmm. take them on board that they were at their school and um and I think that's what it was they grew up with us as as growing up because the amount of people I get come up to me and say oh golly you were part of my childhood and it's lovely and they've got really fond memories of growing chill same as I have being in it what were some of your favorite early storylines when you first joined the show um I've not told a lot of people about this I actually I actually remember going to wows early I mean that I'll talk about that the Best episode ever is the Chesington Zoo episode uh, where me and Jonah, we run riot in Chesington Zoo and Lee, his bag gets thrown into the sea lions uh, by another school and he falls in with the sea lions. And then we get chased by the zookeeper into the toilets on a ghost train. So, you know, to be or, or 13 at that time and do that was was brilliant but then there was another side of it where we went to we went to wales on an outward bound course and i remember that there was like anisher children which i come from like uh, over in north london and then there was sylvia young's which were proper theater school kids and there was more from sylvia young than anisher's and it become a bit of against you know this time it wasn't bullying but it was like theater school rivalry yeah and i remember calling my mum my mum was in she was in uh, Spain and I was in uh, in Wales and I, I didn't have any other Anishur friends. And I remember calling my mum crying on the phone saying, I don't, I don't want to be here now because they're all sort of not bullying, that's not the word, but all sort of ganging up these things you do as a, as a kid. And she said, well, I can't do anything. I'm in Spain. Um, <laughs> but I got through it. I, I managed getting through it. And on that, on that trip was amazing that, that we, uh, one of the guys, what we did is when he was asleep, uh, me and Lee put all water in his bed. So when he woke up, he thought he wet the bed and got ripped out of it be- because of that. So the antics on set were just as bad off set <laughs> as well. It was amazing. It was so good. I mean, I remember that the topics on the show that were covered were really grown up for for kids telly I mean other than your heroine storyline which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute over the years I remember there was there was child abuse there was knife crime there was the first gay teacher a student had an affair with a teacher there was a rape storyline I mean it was really hard hitting it was really hard hitting and what is good with that I know Grange Hill was watched by a lot of parents with their children um, and these events were happening in school, but not spoke about within the family, within the family home. And I think with the adults watching it with their kids or the parents watching it with their kids, it gives an opportunity for them to discuss issues that are ongoing in school. So I think that, that it made it more of, a, more of a talkative subject on various aspects of what's going on in school. So I think it was really, I think it's really good, was a really good programme for that. Mm. And I also remember... Because I started watching Grange Hill kind of like mid 
80s. So I was born in 1980. So I, I kind of got into it about 86 because my brother was four years older than me and I just wanted to watch everything that he watched. So I got into it probably quite early as a six-year-old watching secondary school pupils. Wow. I, I vividly remember Imelda, who I think was the first girl bully that I'd seen on screen. They'd always been boy bullies in Grange Hill. And then all of a sudden there was this girl with wild hair who was terrorizing people. And I think that was it that was quite an eye-opener for me to think, wow, girls can be mean too. That was that was very clever as well, because you do associate um boys being bullying and, and stuff. And then Imelda Cameron, she was after I was in it, Fleur. Uh, I still speak to Fleur, the real person, the real name of, of Imelda. And um, yeah, I've got. There's a scene in it in Grange Hill where she, she there's um there's a, a pond outside Grange Hill School, and she pushes somebody in the uh in the pond. So she was a real bad, a real bad bully, real bad girl. And he, like you say, yeah, the spiky hair. It was a uh, complete rebellion. I think it was a mullet, yeah, wasn't it? it? Was, I think it was. Yeah, I've seen a picture. Yeah, <laughs> bit of a worry. That sharp job. Uh, and we have to talk about the teachers. Um, they always seem so much more exciting than my own teachers, uh, apart from Mr. Bronson, who I just felt terrified looking at him. Yeah, when we was when we was working there, I remember the, the teachers because we would be separated from the teachers. So because um, we were quite young, they were quite clever because if we messed about, they would would scream at us or shout at us as if they were the teachers in Grange Hill. So we was quite scared of them. Um, and Mr. Bronson had such a presence about him. I uh, bless him, he, he's passed away since then. But he he was amazing. He would walk in a room and you would be petrified exactly as it is on screen without even doing any any scenes. He would just terrify you. And then there was Bullet Baxter, who I absolutely loved. And obviously, you know, iconic Miss McCluskey. If you see her now, she looks exactly the same as she did uh, 20 years ago. But yeah, they were really scary to us. They were, it wasn't until we got to about 16, 17 and, and mingled with them as actors rather than uh, teachers who would scare you. And obviously you had one of the biggest storylines on the show at its peak, which was when Zamo became addicted to heroin. And it was it was just so well done. And I guess unsurprisingly because Oscar winner Anthony Minghella wrote yeah. the storyline at the time but yeah. but that storyline ran for for two years which is quite mm. a long time for for I guess any show because normally if, if a character is going to do drugs they're going to do it one episode you learn the moral of the story yeah. and we move yeah. on yeah. but for two years that's quite a long character arc for you yeah I think the the idea was because uh Zamo was a really bubbly type character um and, and BBC wanted to tackle a drug issue but Normally, drugs, you associate bad people. It would be like the gripper character, get involved with drugs. Yeah, we know it's always bad people. So they chose a, a friendly character, or a, a lovely character, and see the demise of Harry started to get involved. And then the change in this character that was from such a lovely, lovely lad to stealing off his best mate, stealing off his mum, lying, cheating, do, you know, everything that you wouldn't imagine to do. So... When they first asked me, uh, they asked my parents if, or Anthony did, and the producer, Ron, Ron Smedley, um, and my mum weren't aware of drugs, not aware of heroin at all. You know, it was a big thing back in the day. It still is now. And so they wasn't sure. So they said, yeah, it's, it's fine. And then we went to rehabilitation centres before we started filming to research it. And that's when it dawned on me what a big, you know, what a big storyline we were taking on. And hopefully it was 
it, it was going to be done in the right way. And looking back on it, I think they did it really well. I mean, we get loads of uh, people say they don't do drugs now because of that. So if just one person did that, then the message got out there. But wasn't the plan to to kill you off originally? Yes, that was uh, that was it. And it's really bizarre because um, they was going to get Zamo at the start of series uh, nine or ten, whenever the drugs one was, and it was going to kill him off at the end. But then Grange Hill got audience from, like you say, you was only young, so audiences from three or four upwards, and that would have been horrific to have a character die for for that audience, that age audience. So they did, mm-hmm. which is it. I mean, it's as hard hitting as it was in series, uh, the following one, I think it was series 10, he goes to a rehabilitation centre and gets better and, and and that's it. But the actual series nine, which they did was, I mean, there's a scene on it, an iconic scene where there's no music at the end of the episode. It just pans in on me where Roland's found me and people don't know if I'm, you know, if I'm dead or it's, uh, you know, it was just an overdose that I got out of, but I do look really in trouble in that episode, and it's even daunting now. And I've got a couple of kids, two 12-year-olds, stepdaughter and a son, Harry and Katie, and I won't let them. I would now when now they're in big school, but a couple of years ago, I wouldn't let them watch. They was watching Grange Hill, but they wasn't allowed to watch the drug storyline. I just thought it was too much. So if I thought that, Mm. I mean, that many years ago when young kids are watching it, it must have been scary to watch. And, of course, that storyline spawned a anti-drugs campaign and a charity single just say no it did. but but you weren't allowed to sing on it no no this is so this is so true as well they come in and said um can you sing on this and I was I, I was so chuffed I said but I, I can't sing and they did they took me to a room of the BBC and said you could do the arpeggio and and I, I genuinely I've said this before I thought it was a Greek island I didn't know what they were talking about <laughs> um so he, he he said sing a note so I went uh <laughs> And he said, sing another note. And I did, and another. And honestly, he slammed the piano down, walked out of the room. Before he left, he said, you'll have to mime <laughs> on the record. So Roland sings my bits. But what made it worse is we started doing some dance moves. And they said to me, stop messing about. I said, no, I'm doing it. <laughs> and they went, oh, no, you are kidding. We've got the main guy who can't sing or dance on the record. So if you look at the video, I'm doing weightlifting on the video. So... But it was amazing, to like unbelievable to do. And what were your last days like on the show? Was it was it like the last day of school for you? I mean, it was such an anti-climax because on the back of the Just Say No record, we got invited to to America to sit with Nancy Reagan in the White House and sing at Yankee Stadium in Central Park and tour, you know, seven states of America singing the record. So that was the the the... Obviously, that was on the back of my last um, my last series being filmed. I was doing all this massive promotion for Just Say No, I had a, a record in the charts at number five. And then you know it's going to come to an end because it's like, you know, it's not like you're going to kicked out of EastEnders or, or a soap. You know mm. you're coming to the end of your time when you leave sixth form. Um, but it was still a massive shock when I left. On the last day, um, it was really high. And I remember waking up the next morning. I've been doing this for the last six years. And it was it was just emptiness. It was and it was it was a horrible feeling because I knew I weren't going back. But you still remain good friends with a lot of the cast, don't you? Especially especially Roland. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um 
Justin uh, Lee, Lee Collins did the reunion back in 2005. And uh, because of that, we've all kept it. And because of Facebook and stuff like that, yeah. we all keep. But me and Erkan speak regularly. We uh, speak to him once a week, once a fortnight. We don't meet up as much because he's got a, a child now. Him and his wife's got a baby, so he's really busy. And he works for the NHS, so he is really busy at the moment. I imagine, but, yeah. And even when we speak, we will we'll always mention Grange Hill or something to do with Grange Hill or it's just a massive part of our lives. And, and it is funny when we're together and people say Roland Zamo is, you know, <laughs> still people remember that now. We're now going to move from the nostalgia zone into what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. After you left Grange Hill, uh, you never really had any intentions of pursuing acting because you wanted to be a professional boxer. Yeah, when I left Grange Hill, I was still with Vanishers, but my ambition was to box. Um, and one of the things that I did do, I was boxing when I was at Grange Hill and I nearly got busted once because looking back on it, it's terrible. But we had a studio day and I was boxing in Derby in the evening. Um, my dad said, you, you, you can't go to... Grain chill. I said, I've got to. So I went in and pretended I was sick and had the day off. But I come back the next day with a black eye because I'd fought in Derby. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's terrible to do that. But that's how much the boxing took priority out of out of the two careers. Um, so I left Grain Chill and I mm. went to sign with, uh, I went round to various promoters. You had real skill because you won a couple of titles didn't you it was the junior amateur boxing association championships yes. and you won a couple of titles there and yeah with my boxing I did really really well. I was boxing from the age of seven um there's a really one of my best fights that I like boxing uh Kevin Hodgkinson he's actually on YouTube um when I was 16 boxing on Henry Cooper's golden belt and I won that um won the junior ABAs NABCs the schools uh Kevin Hickey was the uh coach for the Olympics um, was quoted as saying Lee McDonald is a possible Olympic, you know, hopeful. Um, so it was all going in the right direction. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. And my dad, bless him, uh, was my was my coach. And and so the two of us in the ring, it was just it was just really because he used to box, so I was just following his footsteps. What was the feeling that you got from boxing that you didn't get from acting? Um, the adrenaline rush from uh, from boxing. Acting, you go in, you do your lines and you come off, whereas the boxing, and because I was good at it and I, I knew the more you train, the better you got and the higher level you're going to get. And the adrenaline before a fight, I would be petrified, so scared, but so want to do it. You can never, unless you've ever boxed, you would never understand that feeling before you get into the ring. It's it's petrifying and it's it's an adrenaline rush. And then when you finish, the whole thing is, is such a buzz. It, uh, and I was good and I knew I was good and I enjoyed that, being able to show my skills off in the ring. But then one day, your life changed. Take me through what happened that day. Well, I, I got up, I'd been to the gym, uh, come home from the gym, and it was it was quite late. Um, so I was dropping, I borrowed my dad's van, he had an old transit van. So I said, Dad, I'm dropping some of the kids off. Or the, it was really late. And um, so I was driving back through London on my own in the in the in the van. And um, the next thing I know, I'm waking up and ambulance people around me. My dad's around me. My mum's around me. They're crying. I'm covered in blood. 
And by all accounts, police were chasing a Peugeot 205 GTI at 97 mile an hour, uh, Bethnal Green Road, and it had hit the back of the van that I was in. The van span and I went 47 feet through the windscreen. Wow. Um, and lucky at that time, seatbelts weren't legal because the steering wheel crushed through the um the, the seat that I was sitting in. So fortunately I came out of the seat and through the windscreen. Wow. Um, but I had severe head injuries um and bad back injuries. And because of that on the back of that when I was in hospital for a week I was unconscious in and out of consciousness for a little while. And they said because of the head injury can't box anymore. So I was absolutely devastated. Devastated. I can imagine. What how did you what what was your initial reaction to that being told that this thing that you were going to pursue a career in couldn't happen anymore? Um, at first, it just didn't sink in because I remember saying to my dad, I've got to get back to the gym. And he said, son, you can't box. And in my head, I hadn't accepted that. I just thought when I'm out and walking, I, I can do it. And when I get back in the gym, and it was probably only about two or three weeks after that when I sat down with my parents and sobbed, so cried my eyes out. Um, and realized I couldn't box anymore. And it had been something I've been training for since I was seven. So words can't express the devastation of, of that when I knew something that I'd been training for all my life and was looking forward to, you know, the short career it is, probably till 28, 30. I was looking forward to the next 10 years being being so fulfilling for myself. And then mm. just like a, a train wreck, it was just taken away from me. How did your injuries affect your life after? Uh, the head injury was quite bad for a period of time. I didn't go out for a few weeks. Then I remember going to a garage to get some uh, bits and pieces and paid for it with some money. And then he gave me the change and it scared me because I couldn't remember what I'd give him and what change I was getting. So I went back for more scans um, and everything was all right. But it, it probably took me, I would say, 18 months to get myself back on track to, to be in how I felt before. It was a long time. Head injuries are horrible. So then after the accident, we'll fast forward a few years, probably like about a decade, but you bought a locksmith shop and that's kind of been your life since. I did, yes. I um, I, I was doing bits and pieces of TV work, but not really. I wasn't committed to it because of losing the boxing. So I bought the shop in 2000 with the with the intention of getting back into TV work and getting somebody to run it, but I've just sort of been stuck here since then doing bits and pieces. And two thousand and uh, two thousand eight, I had my little boy Harry, and life changed after that. I had him, and then decided the shop is brilliant, but I do want to get back into doing more TV work. I I've got a base to get an income, so he's now twelve, and they're sort of offhand. So the last ten years for me have been sort of raising my son and now thinking right I want to dive back into doing tv work and that's where I'm sort of heading at now how much did you know about being a locksmith or indeed running a business when you bought the shop was there like a steep learning curve that you had to go through yeah as far as uh, having the shop here now my training basically is when I left Granger when I was working at Granger I used to work for a, a guy called uh, Eddie Aldridge his company called Aldridge over in um, North London and I would work there in between Grange Hill so if I wasn't at Grange Hill and I wasn't at school they would let me go in there and work there so I carried work on working there in between my boxing and then when the boxing finished that was just the sort of 
transition in the fact that I was familiar with that and it was a job. Mm. Um, and I was doing that until 2000 and then the shop come up and I just thought, well, this is the next step forward is to run a, you know, run a business and, and, and make it go like that. Unfortunately, it was, it's been doing really, really well. As I said, 2000, we're still here to run a small business on your own. So many foul. Um, but we've got, you know, got through rough times and that. And, and I'm still here now. What would your top tips be for anyone who's thinking about, about starting a business? Um, I mean, starting a business is really, you've got to have all the business ideas in place and your finance in place because it does drain your finances. I mean, I took it on, didn't realize I had advertising to do. You've got the rates and whatever. So if you are, if you're going to start a business, I would say, if you can, don't get a shop first because the shop drains any money. If it's a business, i.e., you know, like a, a plumber, a locksmith, go and work for somebody, um, get a couple of years experience, grab a van, put a little ad out and start doing your own work that way. That would be my tip. And I assume this this lockdown period has been pretty hard for you as a business as it has been for, for all businesses. Yeah, well, I mean, I had a meltdown on the 21st of, because, um, you know, we live for every month. Anyone who runs business will know. But at the end of the month, you take money from here to pay that. So all the bills are paid, the mortgage is paid, and then you start again the next month. And on the 21st, I think it was that ran up Friday in March, and it said all shops are closing. I was like, ah, oh, now I'm really in trouble because I need an income to pay to pay all the bills. But fortunately, the council come down and said, you're a key worker. Oh, golly, I've heard that before. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but so fortunately, we were allowed to stay open. And we have weathered the storm. We've ticked over. We've been doing outside work. The shop's been ticking over. So um, I know lots of businesses has and I have really struggled. And I really feel for them. But touch wood, we have got through. And hopefully, you know, next couple of months will we'll increase uh, revenue through the shop and we can just bounce back but touch wood at the moment all is okay not brilliant but okay cool just to kind of bring us sort of back around to the start there was a long period where you didn't want to be associated with Grange Hill at all but now you really embrace that part of your life yeah I remember not wanting to be associated with Grange Hill when I'd the boxing finished and then I went to work in a company and I'd have people come through the door and I used to put keys in bags. It would be like a uh, a warehouse and I'd put keys in bags and give them to customers. And it was people had seen this Zamo go into the White House and, and have its records in the charts, then putting stuff in a warehouse, putting it. And that slaughtered me, absolutely crucified me because people are coming and go, wow, you, you is that all you do now? And I got that day after day, week after week, year after year for a long period of time. And then what really broke my heart is I remember sitting I remember sitting in the warehouse and it came on the news that John Alfred had start with me in Grange Hill. He was Robbie, wasn't he? Yeah, when Robbie got um, London's Burning, I remember being in the warehouse, putting keys, I remember it, putting counting keys in a bag. And it said John Alfred from Grange Hill is now in London's Burning. And that really hurt. You know, best of luck to John, he did really well. But I was like, you know, I was, why wasn't I doing that? Everything had seemed to have gone wrong for me. It just, and that's when I wouldn't mention Granger. I didn't want it brought up. I didn't want, hmm. what are you doing now? I'm putting keys in about it. Just, it was all soul destroying. So probably for a long period of time until I bought the shop, 
So up and probably from 90 to 2000 were, were, were dark years for me. And then what made you kind of reconcile, I guess? Well, I think what it was is um, I didn't realise how the shop could or Grainshaw could benefit the shop. Um, so when, when I took the shop over, people – and because it was my own business and I wasn't putting keys in the bag – the fact that I worked in the shop, it was my own shop, my own business. I had a couple of guys working for me. So people would come in and go, oh, wow, you used to be Zamo and Grange. I'm like, yeah, tell your friends, Zamo. You know, tell your friends and your other friends. Get more people to come in. So then I remember just walking around a state agent saying, uh, not I'm Zamo, but uh, <laughs> I'm Lee McDonald. I've just, and they would recognize me when I walked in. So from that first two or three months, I grabbed five or six local estate agents on the back of being Zama. And I thought, well, this mm. the first time in 10 years, it, it's going to work for me and in favour for me. So I did that for from 2000. And then on the back of Zamo come uh, the Celebrity Scissorhand, uh, the circus show that I did, the uh, Celeb Circus mm. show. So all of a sudden, Grangel started to work again. And then and then I was embracing it because it was a good time and, and people have such fond memories from watching it. So I started to enjoy it all over again. And and obviously you're starting to get back into acting more. We saw you in EastEnders last year. Yes, my trip back to EastEnders. And that was really bizarre because I've always wanted to do EastEnders and, and Cherry Major rung me and said, there's a part for you or part, you know, can you go up and audition? And I was so excited. And the nerves before I went into the audition, I don't get nervous for audition. I'll just go and do them because I wanted it so much. It was very similar to my boxing. Um, I was petrified before I got to Elstree. I remember ringing my mum and my mum was like, calm down, you're fine. So I got some um, uh, some calms remedy that, that, I, that I took before I went in. Um, and then when I went into the, to the office, I walked up to the first floor, read the script. As soon as I read the script, it was like, this is like reading Zamo 20 years on. I can do this really easily. <laughs> so I went in to see the director, uh, Thomas, and I walked in. And the room that I did audition in was where I used to play Paul in in 1985, <laughs> all them many years ago. And I walked in and the, the director uh, and the casting guy was talking about Grange Hill so, and being back at Elstree. So it felt right being back there so for me to be in there and the first scene was with Danny Dyer who I absolutely love and the second scene was in in the Queen Vic so if you're going to do uh, an EastEnder episode do it with Danny Dyer <laughs> in the Queen Vic it was perfect I loved it so how are you gonna how are you gonna juggle your acting with running the shop um I've got I've now got somebody who's going to come in and uh, a retired guy who's going to come in because the outside work looks after itself we've got a couple of guys doing that so this guy's going to come in and cover me if I need to go off and do some other stuff. I was supposed to do a film in April, which has been postponed. Um, and Cherry's got me doing a couple of reading for some bits coming up. So uh, looking promising. I mean, the, the lockdown has been a real shame. It's put a mm. stop to some of that. But hopefully now me, my son's a little bit older and that gives me a bit more time to go off and the shop's covered. I want to go and do more now. I love it. And uh, And the next thing for you, I guess, will be planning your wedding because you got engaged during lockdown. I did. On the 20, I think it was 22nd, which is a Saturday or a Sunday. It was the weekend before lockdown. I had a hotel booked um, in Surrey and they rung me on the, I had to pick the engagement ring up on the Friday. They rung me to say, you better get here now because we're going to close for lockdown. So I ran and got that, come back and the hotel rung said, we're cancelling your booking. 
Oh, no. Yeah, so I rang the hotel and said, look, can I come anyway? So they said, yeah, you can be careful. So I, we drove to the hotel. I got engaged there. And the, the wedding plans are hopefully going to be next year. Obviously, it's all up in the air because of what's going on. But yeah. we plan to get married uh, later next year. So really excited. Oh, well, best of luck and enjoy the big day. Um, it's been lovely speaking with you again, Lee. Thank you very much. Oh, Genevieve, it's been absolutely amazing. Just like 10 years ago, it's been lovely. <laughs> really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And you look amazing. Thank you. Very nice you've said so. Thanks again to Lee for taking the time to join me. His shop, Mentor Lock, is in Wallington in Surrey if you want to pop in and say hello. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. If you did, do please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to join me reminiscing with other much-loved stars from the 1980s to the early noughties, please follow or subscribe and you'll be the first to know when the next episode comes out. In the meantime, if you want to say hello or suggest a guest for future episodes, you can find me on Instagram at Celebrity Catch Up Podcast or on Twitter at Celeb Catch Up Pod. Until next time, thanks for listening. Listener.